Good morning. Well, like Emerson said, uh, I am Pastor Brian Bish, uh, one of two lead pastors at St. Paul's Eve Free. It is my great joy to come and teach here this morning. And just to get a picture of what God's doing in other churches is, is always such a joy to my heart. Um, I will just tell you, you have a beautiful facility here. Uh, I have been very warmly welcomed by everyone who's greeted me, and uh, I pray the very best for your church. So let us turn to God's Word. Today we are going to look at Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. 1 to 8. If you have a Bible, take it out. And let's look at this together. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is God's word. So in 2015, the Minnesota Vikings were in the playoffs. And if you can remember this moment of NFL history, the score was 10 to 9. It was cold. It was a hard-fought game. And the Vikings, in their final drive, had brought the ball to the 27-yard line. There was less than 30 seconds left. And if you're not a football fan, I get it. The Rams left. I get it. It's hard to be a football fan this year. But that kick should have been a give-me. Blair Walsh was their kicker. He was 33 for 34 on field goals under 30 yards that year. We're talking 97% chance that he kicks this field goal. But somehow, he missed. And the Vikings' uh, playoff hopes were dashed. Now, it is fascinating, but not surprising, what we saw in the media. Basically, he was hated. And the social media was even worse. It was as though a bunch of virtual pitchforks and an angry mob with pitchforks and torches arrived at his doorstep. And if you were Blair Walsh, you would have wanted to curl up in the fetal position in your basement and never come and see the light of day again. It was in this situation that something very countercultural happened. A group of first graders at a local school in Minnesota set out to encourage the broken-hearted kicker. First grader Allie Edwards said, Blair was really sad, and we wanted to make him feel better. One of her classmates wrote, Dear Blair Walsh, I think you should keep trying. Don't give up. We still love you. Get better by practicing. 
Tyler Dauphin, another student, filled a whole page for Walsh. Dear Blair, I feel bad for you. Don't give up. You're still number one. Practice more so that you can get better at kicking. You're so good at kicking, so don't give up. Keep trying. We still love you. The act of kindness got Blair Walsh's attention. He delayed his flight one day so that he could go and visit the first grade class personally. And he said, it was very touching to me. I will cherish their letters forever. So this morning, uh, I would like to share with you something that we're doing at St. Paul's. Uh, every year we try to have a, a vision for the year. And our vision for 2018 was simply the word encouragement. And our prayer for our church is that we would be so drenched, soaked, marinated in gospel, Bible encouragement that there would be nothing that could stop us from carrying on and doing exactly what God has called us to do. And I don't, by any means, think that I can come into your church and give you a vision for the year, but this is my prayer. And I've prayed this before I began to teach this morning. My prayer is that you, or at least some of you, would leave here and you would say, where might God send me to be an encouragement to those around me? How could I speak words that lift people up, that help them to press on and to persevere and to overcome whatever the world has for them? And so today, with uh, this time that I get to teach, I would like to really answer two questions. First of all, what is encouragement? And secondly, why is justification so encouraging? Now, at our church, we really like to do what we call expository preaching, and I imagine in a Bible church, you're very used to that. Um, and I'm going to dance around before I get to Romans a little bit, because I want to teach about encouragement. Now, encouragement, please listen, let me tell you what it is not. Encouragement is not making people feel good about themselves. Now, that is what our world thinks that encouragement is. So if I was to go up and encourage somebody uh, from the world's perspective, I would say, you're awesome, man. You're great. You can do it. Keep going. You're going to be fine. That's the way our world gives encouragement. We basically puff people up, and we tell them to look inside themselves so that they can somehow muster uh, and in, within themselves and pull themselves up by their bootstraps so that they can keep pushing on. And the problem with that is it doesn't, work. It might work in some situations, but it doesn't work for all situations. And why do you tell the businessman who just drained his retirement savings because he has had this vision, his, this dream his whole life, that he is going to go and start this business. He takes everything he's ever worked for, everything he saved, he remortgages his house, and he goes and invests it, and it fails. And it all goes to zero. And if you're the world and you want to go and encourage him, you say, oh man, you're great. You've got this. You can do it. Just keep going. And he says, no, I can't keep going. I have nothing. It's all over for me. You can think of someone who's gone through the loss of a loved one. What does the world have to say to someone when they just lost a child, like we heard about in the pastoral prayer today, or if they just lost a, a spouse, or anyone? The world doesn't have a source of encouragement. But the church 
does. Here's what encouragement is, biblically. This is how we've defined it at St. Paul's. Um, because it's a big word. It shows up 110 times in the New Testament. And it has a, a wide range of meanings. But we've distilled it like this. To encourage someone is to give them what they need. To press on. To persevere. And to overcome. It's to give someone what they need. To press on. And to persevere. And to overcome. Now the Greek word for encouragement, and if you're a Bible geek like me, you'll recognize this word. It's the word paraclete. Some of you are saying, ah, the word paraclete, I've heard that before. Paraclete is a word that is used to describe the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is recorded saying, it is good for you that I go away, because if I go away, I will send you a helper. Now that word, that's the word paraclete. Uh, Jesus is saying, I will send you an encourager. Uh, the old King James Version says, I will send you a comforter. It's all the same thing. It's someone that's going to come and help you to keep going, to press on, to persevere, and to overcome. In the book of Hebrews, which you are studying in 3.13, it says, encourage each other daily. How much do we need to be encouraged every day? In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, God is referred to as the God of all encouragement. The God of all encouragement. It's the God of all comfort. It depends on your translation, but it's that same Greek word, the word paraclete. Here's what was most interesting as we studied encouragement, getting ready for this year, is that if you look through the book of Acts, and you see what Paul and Barnabas did. By the way, you remember what Barnabas' name means? Son of encouragement. What did they do? They went to different towns, and they planted churches. They started churches, and they encouraged the, the congregations there. Every time, almost, almost every time in the book of Acts, before Paul and Barnabas would leave a church, they would encourage the brothers and sisters in the Lord there. Encouragement is so important because life is hard, and it is not easy to keep going. And so my prayer is that encouragement would take off like a, like a wildfire. It would be contagious my prayer for my church, I actually told them this. I said, I pray that we would be so filled with encouragement that negative and divisive uh, talk, critical talk that's unredemptive and doesn't help anyone, I pray it would look so out of place that everybody would say, ew, don't do that. That's not what we're about here. And after I preached this sermon, because I'm surprised I've preached this before, um, Sorry, I didn't create a fresh sermon for you. Um, no, when I preached this on January 7th, a woman came up to me afterwards, and we had our annual business meeting at the end of January, and she said, you know, I was ready to raise a stink about the stuff. But then your sermon made me think, maybe I shouldn't do it. <laughs> I was like, yes, <laughs> yes. Maybe you can handle that in a way that's redemptive. Talk to the appropriate people beforehand and just don't air your grievances in front of a couple 300 people. Great idea. I pray that you would be, and the Chatham Bible Church uh, would grow in encouragement. So that's why I chose Romans chapter 4. Each one of the pastors at St. Paul's uh, has chosen what is their most encouraging passage 
in the Bible. And for me, Romans chapter 4, which I just read, is the most encouraging passage in the Bible. And so the second question is, what, why is justification so encouraging? Justification is a big Christian word. I imagine there are people in this room who do not know what it means. And it refers to the two-way transfer of Jesus taking our sin and we, as those who have placed their faith in Jesus, getting his righteousness. Now look at the Bible. Now I will return to expositing the scripture for this morning. Um, look at the scripture. Verse 1, it says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, forefather according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, there's that word justified, he has something to boast about. So Abraham learned something. He gained something. And what he learned and what he gained was this teaching about justification. Now, everybody in America, whether you're a Christian or not, knows that Christians believe that Jesus took our sins on the cross. That is not news. But we are very quick to forget that we, as his bride, get Jesus' righteousness. My lovely wife loves to tell, tell it like this. She says, imagine that you are living in an apartment. And it's not just any apartment. It's your very first apartment. The very first apartment you had when you were like 20, maybe 23 or whatever, and you don't have anything. And so your couches are like from 1967, whatever your grandma, you know, didn't want to use anymore and she threw down in the basement because she never throws anything away. So she pulls out and she says, here, you can have this. And you say, oh, well, at least I'll have a place to sit. And you have a TV and it's, you know, this big and it barely fits in the room. And your car is ready to break down at any given moment. And inside the refrigerator, you only, you don't have, you know, money for really good food, you live off of Hot Pockets and Totino's Pizza Rolls. And remember, everybody was at that place in their life sometime. And if you happen to be a young guy or girl right now and that's where you are, don't worry. It'll get better. But imagine that that's where you are and a rich man comes by. And he says, you know, I heard of your sad state of affairs. And just because... I'm a loving and merciful guy, and I heard of your situation. I'm going to switch places with you. I will live here in this apartment. You can take my mansion. I have a three-car garage. You won't have to worry about your cars breaking down anymore. The refrigerator is stocked with food. All the utilities are paid. The taxes are paid. The furniture is beautiful. And you can just have it. It is just a gift. Would you like to take it? And you would say, of course I would take it. Of course I would. You say, what's the catch? There's no catch. And they say, well, can I pay you back? What are you, my wife loves to point this out. What are you going to do? Are you going to insult his generosity by giving him like $10? You're like going to muster up all of your spare cash and be like, here, well, I can give you $10. The rich guy would say, you're missing the point. This is a gift. It is a gift that I give you at my own cost simply because I love you and because I'm full of grace and full of mercy. That's what the doctrine of justification is. 
The Bible actually uses the language of riches and poverty. It says, you know, he who was rich became poor so that we who are poor might become rich. And that's spiritually. That's spiritually. It's talking about our sin that he takes. And what it means is that we do not have to live our lives proving ourselves for God. It's not like he just wipes the slate clean. He forgives our sins. You say, that's great. But if he only forgave our sins, what would happen next? Then I would say, okay, well, now I better, I better build something to show him, right? I better, I better uh, do the other half. I better make myself holy and righteous enough for him. I'm thankful they gave me a clean slate. But he didn't just give you a clean slate. He actually gave you his righteousness. There's nothing that you can add to the salvation that God gives you. And if you don't see why that's encouraging, well, let me help you. This passage uses three illustrations to help us understand that justification is not just the way it is in the New Testament, but it's actually the way God operated in the Old Testament. And the first example is Abraham. Now, in the ancient world, people thought, you know, Abraham must be somebody. For God to choose him to be the father of many nations, for God to choose Abraham to uh, be the father of Israel, the nation of Israel, certainly Abraham must have been somebody. He must have been a great guy. He must have been really good. And so Paul is dealing with that. And he's saying, verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. In other words, that's not the way it works. God did not choose Abraham because he was somebody. If you go back to Genesis chapter 11, the very end of that passage, when we see a little detail about Abraham's family, he was Abram at that time, you will find that he was living in Ur of Chaldea. That's basically modern-day Iraq. He was not a God-fearing person. He was living in what the, the Jewish people considered Babylon, the land of the Babylonians. He was basically a regular, ordinary, idol-worshiping pagan. He was nobody when God called him. And God looked down at Abraham, and he said, Go from the land of your fathers to the land I'll show you, and I'll make you a great nation. He received this offer, and he responded with faith. And so, verse 3, look at what, uh, in Romans chapter 4, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was because he believed God. And that's in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Salvation is by faith the whole way through, and it's always been justification. In some mysterious way, Christ's righteousness was even imputed back in time to the Old Testament believers, which is crazy and amazing. If proving it from Abraham was not enough, King David certainly should work. So if you go down further, verse 5, Paul continues, he says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Verse 7, 
And this is a psalm. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will never count his sin. Now, there is very good reason to believe that that psalm was written in response to David's affair with Bathsheba. And if you're unfamiliar with the story, let, let me remind you. At the time when kings go out to war, and David was a king, the time when kings go out to war, David stayed home. He sat on the couch, he ate grapes, he looked out his window, and on the top of a house he saw a beautiful woman bathing, realized it was the wife of his commander Uriah, a good man. David decided not to care about that very much, invited Bathsheba up to his room where they conceived a child. And at this point, David's in a little trouble, but Bathsheba's in a whole lot of trouble. Because to be an adulterous woman at that time, I mean, basically her life's on the line. And David realizes that he needs to cover this up. Now, by the way, who's David? David is the king, uh, you know, God's anointed shepherd king of Israel that God's made a covenant with that, you know, someone from your line will be on the throne of Israel forever. And he's a man after God's own heart. He's the one who wrote the Psalms, a ton of them. This is a good man, but this is his worst moment. And so he has to cover up his sin. So he brings Uriah home. And he says, Uriah, go spend the night with your wife. Uriah is too good to do that. He says, no, my men are all suffering out there on the front line. How can I go home and be comfortable? What a dig at David. So David says, well, that didn't work. Well, maybe I'll try to get Uriah drunk and then send him home. Then he won't even know what happened. But Uriah still wouldn't go home and slept on the stairs outside of David's palace. So David realizing that there's no other way to cover up his sin, sends Uriah uh, back to war and gives his commander, Joab, uh, a command. And he says, send him into the toughest fighting and then have everybody withdraw from around him and leave him to die. Now, do we have anyone who ever served in the military here? I mean, basically, there's a lot of people who served in the military in my church. Veterans Day, they all stand up. Here's what I know about people who serve in the military. It's a band of brothers. Sometimes a research has shown that uh, soldiers on the battlefield will form closer relationships even than a relationship they have with their wife. And you just don't abandon your commander on the battlefield. And so when David sends Uriah to the harshest fighting and those men receive this command to abandon Uriah, you know what they say? They say, no, we're not going to leave Uriah here. And it, the report came back that not only did Uriah die, but several of his men died with him. David said, well, that's the way it goes in war. Some people die. The good, these good, noble, God-fearing warriors, members of, of God's people, died because of the lustful, adulterous, uh, wicked, uncontent, lazy heart of King David. Now, if you can remember, what happened is that God sent a prophet to David to confront him. David eventually realizes what he did. He repents. He truly feels sorry for what he did. He truly sets um, a, a new path forward. 
he would have to face the consequences for his actions the rest of his life, and eventually his whole kingdom would come apart because of it. But as far as David, his relationship with God was restored. And so that's why David wrote of justification too. And that's why it says in verse 5, who does God justify? He justifies the ungodly. NIV says he justifies the wicked. Who is salvation for? It is for the wicked. Jesus said, I came to save sinners. That's who justification is for. And I think that's probably why I like this passage uh, and find it most encouraging in my life is because when I sin, I come here and I remember that the Lord forgives me and counts me righteous because of Christ's sake and not because of my own goodness. When I was a, uh, okay, so I've been at St. Paul's since September of 2015. Before that, I served in a rural church uh, for five years. It was a town of 400 people and a zip code of 12, with 1,200 people in the whole zip code. Very small. The graduating class one of the years had six guys in it. And every now and then, like, a family would move in with a girl that would go to their class, but they'd move away. <laughs> I understand. Um, so I pastored this church, uh, two churches there for five years. And after I was there for one year, I got a call um, that one of the men in my congregation who was just a couple years older than me, he was an ag teacher at the local high school. And that high school is the center of the whole life of the town, of course. He um, was being fired and his teaching certificate was being revoked because of something that happened between him and a student consensually at the school. The student was 18. So there was no, uh, there was no official like, legal sentence that he would have to pay for whatever exactly he did. But he lost his career, and most importantly, he lost his entire reputation in this small, tight-knit community. He was a star basketball player uh, when he was in high school. Um, he went to Mizzou. Don't get the wrong idea. He wasn't like some macho jock guy. He, he would give you the shirt off his back. He was mostly, in my opinion, a pretty good guy who made a horrible, horrible, horrible blunder in his late 20s. Horrible blunder. He was married. He had a beautiful daughter. His grandfather was my predecessor as the pastor of this church. Super tight-knit into the whole network of this small world town. And he has just blown it. Um, catastrophically. And so on Monday morning, I hear that on Sunday night, on Monday morning, he shows up in my office. I've invited him there, and we we're talking. And everything I'm telling you is public. Um, I won't tell anything that's confidential, but essentially, um, as we worked through this, I took him to this passage, and I said, God still loves you. There is still hope for you. You can be forgiven. There is a path forward for you. And by the way, it's, it's fascinating um, what's happened what, uh, in the media, because what happens to people when they fail like this in the world? What, what happens when, when we see their face on CNN or on Fox News or on whatever? Basically, it's this person is a monster. There's no hope for them. They need to never be seen again, never talked about again. And uh, just put them away forever, 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 forever. 
And it's fascinating that the, the Bible, Jesus' grace is for sinners. So I'm working with this guy. Gave him a bunch of books to work on. He had uh, some counseling. He ended up having two more kids. His wife and him were able to, to work it through. His life is saved. His life is saved. And nobody will ever look at him exactly the same way when he goes out into the, into the school. And yeah, he has con- consequences. His four-year degree is basically useless. He had to find a new way to uh, make a living for himself. I will tell you, I've never been more proud of, of a church than I was of my church in the country because they did not shun him. They did not shun him. They said, we're going to walk with this couple through this place. And, and uh, I wish I could give you a better update on the girl. She was 18, and she just went to college, and um, I don't really know exactly what happened. And I am not trying to, you know, in any way diminish her pain at all. I mean, what she went through probably was terrible, maybe, maybe even worse. But I only know the other half of the story. And this family was saved because there was grace. I would actually go over to a Super Bowl game, actually, um, and I remember it was my wife and I, and it was this couple at a very prominent person's uh, house in the community. They just invited them over because they just wanted to accept them. They just wanted to show them love and show them grace and say, there are people who will walk with you through this, and we're not going to just hold this against you forever. That's why I got into the ministry. It's because I wanted to walk with sinners and see their lives restored. Now, it's so, it's so powerful to see what happens when grace isn't just an idea, but when it gets lived out in a community. And that's what happened with David. David would pay those consequences, but he would be um, forgiven, and his relationship with God would be restored. There's one last example in this uh, passage about justification. And it's one that you don't need to know anything about the Old Testament in order to understand. Verse 4, it says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Basically, everyone here knows what it's like to get a paycheck. And everyone here knows what it's like to get a gift. I hope. I think we've all gotten a gift at some point in our life. And we can have a choice between looking at God and saying, give me my paycheck, or we can say, give me my gift. And if we say, give me my paycheck, what happens? He says, I will give you what your works have deserved. And none of us has measured up. Uh, All have uh, sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what we would get if we took our paycheck, we say, God, pay me. He cast us away forever. But if we receive the gift, he gives us eternal life and Christ's righteousness. Now, when I was, uh, um, well, my dad, my dad lives in Houston. And I see him about twice a year. And I love it that this is not how it works with my dad. He does, I don't call him up um, and say, I'm coming in. And he says, okay, well, you know, this past year I've been keeping track of your behavior and what you've earned. You've called me 20 times. Average phone call length is 17 minutes. And so when you come down here, because you've been an above average son, but not a perfect son, 
when you come down here, you know, we'll give you a bed to sleep in the house for, for five of the seven days of your stay. And you can have food out of the refrigerator, you know, five of the days. But the other two days you're on your own because you didn't really measure up. You know, that's not what my relationship with my dad is like. Instead, when I go to see him, he puts his arms out wide. He says, son, I've missed you. Everything in my house is yours. And that's the, the heart of our God. That's the character of our God. That when he sees us, he says, I love you. You are my child. Everything I have is yours. He just wants us to take the gift. And that gift is especially for sinners that he restores. So I don't know your church uh, very well. And so applying the sermon to your church is not exactly easy. But I'd like to challenge you this way this morning. Jesus, in, uh, in Jesus' ministry, he was hated by the religious people because he extended grace to people who didn't deserve it. That was basically what, Jesus, what, what put, you know, Jesus, Jesus would go to a prostitute and say, um, I accept you, go and sin no more. He would go to a tax collector. These are people who basically destroyed homes, right? A prostitute destroys a home, destroys a marriage. A tax collector maybe defrauds someone so they lose their business. The tax collectors were incredibly rich, incredibly corrupt. They were traitors. Jesus accepted, yeah, he accepted the good religious folk too if they turned to him, but he also accepted sinners. And that is why Jesus was hated by so many. It offended their sense of justice. I want to ask you all this morning, that I have the privilege of uh, preaching to, would this church, I, don't, I honestly don't know the answer to this question, but would this church receive a sinner? Like, we're all sinners. But if someone blew it, if someone came in here and they were, you know, I have just destroyed my family. Or, if, what if it was someone with, from within the church that blew it? How would you show the grace of God to that person? Because encouragement is giving the person what they need in order to press on and to persevere and overcome. That's what encouragement, how could you encourage a person? Would your church be open to sinners? And I know that can be very challenging. It can be very challenging for us Christians, especially after we walk with Christ for a long time, because the sin of our hearts and the pride of our hearts forgets justification so quick, and we start to think, well, God's closer to me when I have my quiet time every day. God's closer to me if I don't do X, Y, or Z, or if I do X, Y, or Z, or I went to church, so God's a little closer to me. And we really start to get into that works mentality way too easily. We all do it. I do it. Probably every one of you do, does it. We all do it. And when we have that works mentality, then when the sinner comes in, it's way harder to extend grace to them. It's extremely difficult for us in the flesh. I want to encourage you that that's what God is going for. And I'll just share one last thing from the Bible that I, um, it's one of my favorite things to talk about. 
And uh, your church is used to like 40-minute sermons, and my church is used to like 30-minute sermons. So I get to tag one more thing here. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. And it's, have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed that every leader in the Bible, every like hero, quote-unquote, in the Bible, is basically, the Bible goes way out of their way to show how much of a sinner they are. Have you ever noticed that? Like Abraham has this promise that he's going to have kids with Sarah, but he goes to Egypt and he sells his wife off to Pharaoh. That was an act of unbelief. Say, I'm not trusting your promise. And by the way, wives, would you be happy? Would you be happy if your husband (laughs) took you to a foreign land and sold you off to the king? No, you would not be happy with him. It is wrong. It is wrong. Especially for the head of a household. He's supposed to defend and serve, passionately serve his life, lay down his life for his wife. No, Abraham, he blew it. David, like I just preached on, blew it. Peter. Peter. Oh, Peter. I love Peter. Peter is the one who who heard, get behind me, Satan. He's the one who denied Christ three times. Um, He's the head of the church. In some crazy way, God made it so that Peter's failure shows us God's character to forgive and actually qualifies Peter to, to teach about God's grace in a way that he would otherwise not be qualified to teach on. Um, Paul, murderer. And some people like to think, oh, well, it was all pre-conversion, but after they were converted, then they had it together. The Bible doesn't show their post-conversion sin. Poppycock. Peter, well into his ministry, Remember the letters of the Galatians? What was he doing? He was basically acting like a racist, refer, refused to eat with the Gentiles. He is the one who had the vision of the sheets coming down so that he could eat with the Gentiles. No, well into his ministry, Peter blew it, and he had to get a letter in this thing written to him about how he was denying the gospel itself. Why? Why? Because God loves sinners. And we never stood with him because of our goodness. Not for a moment. The Bible makes it crystal clear. Okay. That was fun. Let me, let me, okay, so, so I uh, just really would, you know, would, would pray. And, and, and may, I'll pray for your church. I pray for my church. Our church hasn't had nearly enough believer baptisms in the past two years since I've been there. And it makes me sad. And I think, what could we do to, to, to minister the gospel? I don't know what we need to do differently. And I hope that your church has tons of believer baptisms and people coming to know the Lord. That's a big part of my heart. Um, and I'm going to pray that for us. And then I'm going to pray that for your church. And I'm going to pray also um, that each one of us would remember our status before God, that we're justified as a gift. And he's given us this table so that we would never forget it. So, so let me pray. <clears throat> Lord, I am thankful for the opportunity to worship uh, at this church this morning, and that um, although nobody ever expected it that I uh, came with this message, I pray that this church would be encouraged. I pray that they would have what it takes to press on and to persevere and to overcome. And I pray that they would encourage one another daily, as it says in your word. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways that we try to measure up. Um, And we forget that all of our service to you 
and our life of obedience to you um, is but a response of thanksgiving to what you've already done for us. It's the way that we live as your children, not to become your children. And so forgive us for that and help us to remember today how much you love us. And, and, and finally, I pray for this church. I pray for my own church. I pray for this community, for the St. Louis area. I pray that we would see people turning to you for revival, for conversion, for people who don't know what it is to be a son of the Most High God or a daughter of the Most High God. And I pray that they would come into your kingdom. And I pray that you'd use Chatham Bible Church to be a part of that in ever-increasing and powerful ways. Through your spirit and through your son Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.